Hello, and welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. This podcast helps to inform and empower you about your rights within the workplace. We cover topics and examples of various matters in employment law, including sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, racial discrimination, how the courts define a hostile work environment, whistleblowing, and everything in between. Workplace Justice is brought to you by the New York City employment and civil rights law firm, Nassar Law Group. Here are your hosts, Mahir Nassar, Casey Wolnowski, and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Welcome or welcome back, everyone, to the Workplace Justice Podcast. I am your host, Mahir Nassar, and I am excited to introduce to you our guest on this episode, Dr. Jade Singleton. Jade has spent more than a decade leading impactful communications, people, and leadership strategies at the nation's top nonprofit and investment banking firms. She is the co-founder of Johnson Squared LLC, a consulting company that creates and leads forward-leading corporate DEIB conversations employee experiences, policies, and paths to equity. It infuses psychological safety, equitable work strategies, and an agile approach throughout its forward-leaning model. Jade created Johnson Square together with her sister, Noelle, for companies and professionals that are serious about real change. Jade's research work, leadership challenges, African-American communication, and the corporate environment has been leveraged and cited by academic scholars over 75 times and DIB professionals at all stages of DIB learning and practice. Dr. Jade Singleton, welcome to the show. So I've seen your posts about attributional ambiguity. For our listeners, what is attributional ambiguity? Yeah, so attributional ambiguity is when you're not quite sure what component of your identity, so who you are, is responsible for a particular outcome. So for instance, did I not get the promotion because I'm a, uh, a Black person, or is it because I'm a, a woman, or is it both, or some sort of combination, right? And so the way that folks that are from marginalized identities look at the world is different because you have to protect yourself in a sense. So you're constantly scanning the environment to ensure that you're getting treated fairly, that you're not being taken advantage of. And the reality exists that the data proves, right? That women and especially women of color are paid less, et cetera. So there's a reality that you're always kind of bumping up against and you're trying to figure out what component, what combination of who I am is leading to this particular outcome. And it's very stressful. Attributional ambiguity is very stressful because you're always on. You're always having to be hypervigilant. And I often see this, and I see somewhat of the opposite scenario that also occurs a lot of times is when people experience any form of unfairness within their work environment that they're actually reluctant to even look at who they are as an identity to kind of figure out whether or not perhaps their race has something to do with it, perhaps them being as a part of an intersectional experience that it's based upon that identity that played a role in how they were being treated differently, that there's this internal audit of completely denying mm -hmm. it themselves. Have you seen that often, like in terms of individuals actually gaslighting themselves out of recognizing what's actually occurring? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see this a lot when we talk about something called survivorship bias. Mm -hmm. 
So I've made it this far and it's been solely based upon my own effort. Mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with any combination of identities, et cetera. And so people that might even be in my same demographic have to do the same, go through the same hard knocks. And what that really is, is an attempt to make sense of your own career trauma a lot of times. So when I'm working with folks and they're telling me, I've never had these types of infractions before. I've never dealt with racism or sexism before. I always want to ask, are you sure about, are you sure about that? Yeah. Right. Let's think back to some other experiences. Let's look at your phenomenal resume and how you're three times more qualified than folks that are currently at your level, right? And so I think some of that is just is protection. We are designed, we're wired to believe and want to believe that things are fair, that things are equitable. So behavioral scientists have done massive studies on this with primates, right? Mm-hmm. right. That understand and the concept of fairness and equity, the basics. And so we we want that. We want to know that we're on a level playing field. So some of that is denial. Some of it is managing career trauma. I have to be able to keep barreling on. And also, I don't say this, and I hate to kind of run on, but some people are just tired of it. You're tired of every day thinking about your race. Yeah. You're tired of of showing up in the world that way. That you know, you don't want to have to have that posture. You're tired of the hypervigilance, right? And so you feel like maybe I'll just opt out of this altogether. Hey, I'm here on my merits and whatever happens, happens. So there's elements of that too. It's exhaustion. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. So in your practice, you don't only work with companies, but also with DI professionals in your academy, the Sarah Jane Academy. What are the biggest challenges DEI professionals are currently facing, in your opinion? I would say that the biggest challenge is that there's no centralized type of school of thought around DEI. So DEI practitioners kind of feel like they're out there on their own. Hmm. A lot of the certification programs that are run, and I say ironically, by Ivy League, right, Right. focus on theory. And so the real on the ground as it's happening practices are left out. And Mm. so what you find is a lot of DEI practitioners looking for any information that they can ultimately find to be able to practice safely. And that's because DEI really is, while it's presented as if it's this kind of new thing, right? It's, It's really not. It's really a fusion of a couple of different disciplines. It's change management, which was a huge one. It's sociology, essentially, and it's also organizational psychology. Mm-hmm. And so you've got folks that are kind of circling around trying to figure out the right type of combination. And it's interesting that we just talked about attributional ambiguity because there's a lot of ambiguity as well yeah. in the DEI space right now. In terms of that specific challenge, I mean, I often I follow a lot of different DEI professionals and I follow a lot of their content that they put out with respect to a lot of the experiences that people of color have within the work environment and how there's an effort to try to change the culture that employer has and trying to look deeper within. And a lot of times it's it's so much at a, so much of a crossroad between DEI and efforts by the company, which is an effort trying to brand themselves and market themselves to be yeah. equitable, inclusive, and diverse but with the reality that DEI practitioners are also up against this thing where they're in an, somewhat of a 
part of the department within the company that maybe doesn't drive revenue in accordance with the general thought process of way the company structures are. Obviously, in the long run, we see that there's obviously going to be profitability. Short-term thought processes indicate, oh, there's not, we're not seeing any profit or revenues directed directly from these efforts. Do you find that to be a challenge for DEI professionals in terms of getting really somewhat having ownership of that process? Yeah. 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 The value prop is definitely Mm -hmm. something that can prove to be difficult because there is a tendency to want to tie tie resources to numbers. So if I'm hiring a full DEI staff, how do I measure? That's another big thing. Like, how do I measure that progress is ultimately being made and that I'm making, you know, the right resource allocation to this? And so I think that that is definitely a struggle. But what I find is helpful is when you're focusing on culture. People understand that you cannot do any type of transformation. Everything has to start with people. And so talking about looking at your attrition rates, looking at who's staying, who's going, which component, what part, what segmentation of the populations within your organization are dissatisfied and may ultimately share that information. And so there's a lot of different things too. It has, there's a risk mitigation element to DEI that I think a lot of companies found out the very hard way post George Floyd. Mm. And so I think when we're giving the value proposition, there's a tendency by some practitioners to want to shy away from some of that. You want to focus on increased innovation and all those wonderful things. I like to focus on the reality. Mm -hmm. If something else happens like and it has post George Floyd, and that the world is on fire socially, what is your response? Do you have a strategic response to kind of uh, protect your corporate reputation? And Mm. I think that's missed a lot of times in some of these value propositions. It's how you literally are showing up in the world. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because there was obviously a lot of, there's a lot of different companies that will, in many ways, remove brand endorsements from certain individuals that perhaps do not fit with their with their values that they have at least marketed and branded. But there's two things. One is the public domain, right? You have services and products that people are selling, these businesses are selling. And then you also have the internal workings of the people that are actually a part of that deliverable. And there's a lot of inconsistency I often hear and I'm sure maybe you've come across this many times as well, is that what is being reflected on the outside, branding-wise, reputational-wise, is not consistent with the reality of what's within. Right. And those that never last. Stan Slap, who's probably the foremost cultural expert when it comes to corporations in the U.S., often says, if you can't sell it inside, you can't sell it outside. Yeah, beautiful. So if you cannot get the adoption internally... You might have a flash in the pan, fantastic launch. It's not something that you're going to be able to hold on to if your employees don't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the Sarah Jane Academy. Tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind the Sarah Jane Academy. And I'd love to learn more about Sarah Jane as well. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So the Sarah Jane Academy was something I founded because I saw that there was an issue. I mean, you had a lot of theory. I was meeting with DI practitioners constantly with questions, trying to figure out the right way to centralize some of the information. I said, why don't I just go ahead, get the SERM certification, 
and launch it myself. Mm -hmm. And what I was seeing was that not only was there a gap in the content, but what I developed Sarah Jane to do would be to help with some of the equity of access. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these certifications that are now being more and more required for DEI positions were charging thousands and thousands of dollars, right? So if you're going to one of the IVs to get this, you're looking at a couple grand at least. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of people that were being priced out and I didn't want that to happen. So what I, what I wanted to do was offer it initially as pay what you can wow. and then get it down to about a 10th of what the average cost is for our next cycles so that we wouldn't have those barriers. And so the reason that it's named Sarah Jane Academy, as you mentioned, is after my aunt, she was the first black female professor in the United States. Wow. But she also was a feminist before that was a thing. She was an abolitionist, two of her brothers. So my uncles were killed for their operations on the Underground Railroad. So she was from an Underground Railroad family, right? right that right. literally would gave their lives to freedom. But her biggest thing was education and that Black people be able to have education and access of education. And so when her brother founded Wilberforce University, which was one of the first, well, was the first Black-owned and operated HBCUs in the country, still there in Ohio, mm -hmm. she was able to step into a role of teaching and really grooming folks who had been left out for so very long. And that really spoke to me create a place. And that's what she did. And in a very small way, because this is in no way comparative, I wanted to do the same thing. I wanted to create a space for folks that were like-minded and make it equitable, make it accessible and make it the best. I wanted to offer the very best quality, very best information that I could. That's awesome. And you bring up a word that I, I think I want to ask a lot of people this question because I feel like it's something that we often kind of overlook, what does it mean to you to create an equitable environment? What does equity mean for you? So equity to me means that every person has the tools that they need specifically. So the tools for them to be able to become the best version of themselves that they can. It means that there's not huge mountain boulders and barriers for one person, mm -hmm. just a crack in the road for another that they have to step over, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of leveling the playing field. And I think a great way to think about equity is really equity of access. I'm always asking like, how do folks show up and get to the table, decision-making tables, for instance, within organizations? What is their path to get there? If one person's path looks like it's insurmountable and it's going to take yeah. 10 times longer. And another person has a streamlined path to get there. That tells me there may be some inequity there. Yeah, for sure. It's certainly something that we often see. And it's so hard in many ways to hear. And I've seen this happen so many times. It's such a repetitive response to the idea that, you know, what you're explaining is that there is some unfairness in terms of yeah. access to opportunity. Whereas there are people out there that perhaps may not have their privilege to the degree that they may never have to ever experience that level of inequity in their life. So good for them. But that being said, oftentimes they say, work harder. Sure. What would you say yeah. to somebody that says that, work harder? I would say that, one, and I have heard that before, like you can overcome it 
My question is always, why should you have to do that? Yes. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, why should I, because I was born Black, born a woman, born middle class, why should it be this much harder for my child to be able to make it versus someone else's? If I'm able to produce the same amount of resources, they've done studies that have shown that. Yeah. That Black boys, for instance, coming from poverty and Black boys coming from the middle class, there's zero distinction as far as their earnings. That is the only group that we can see that with. So when people say work harder, they have to, They number one, they don't understand the data because a lot of these folks did work harder, sometimes triple, quadruple times yeah. harder. Just yeah. get basic. Basic. Exactly. So I say you need to be looking at the actual data and you need to understand and figure out why you feel as if folks should have to deal with more obstacles than others instead of eradicating. No, absolutely. What career advice would you give to women and women of color in line with the issues that are astonishingly omnipresent in today's workplaces involving discrimination, racism, pay gap? What, what kind of advice would you give to them? Yeah, well, I'll say two words, walk away. I think that there can be a feeling of being trapped for a lot of women of color, where you you feel as if you can't speak up, you don't feel safe to challenge. I say that there's always different opportunities that are available. I understand obstacles. I understand having to dig in and get through what you need to ultimately get through. But I think the most empowering thing that I can tell women, especially women of color, is that you do have the ability to walk away from a situation that's damaging you. And you do have the option to walk away from a situation that's that's just unfair, fundamentally unfair. Because what we see is that it impacts you so deeply. It causes so many complications in your life, professionally and personally, that the cost is not worth it. And I think the other thing I would say is that I don't care what anyone tells you, nowhere it is always the same. People always want to say, oh, well, you're going to get this anywhere. No, you're not. I've worked in, in companies that were wonderful companies where I felt extremely psychologically safe, super inclusive paid me fair, paid me on time. I could raise my hand and, and and ask for what I want and I got it. There are teams and organizations that do exist like that for you. So you're not trapped in a perpetual state of having to deal with unfairness and injustice. There is somewhere for you to go. That's wonderful. And that's deeply appreciated. For those that are listening, I think that that should play into a lot of circumstances where people feel stuck and don't feel like there's anything out there that could truly give them a fair shot. And people usually do get stuck in those unjust situations. I completely agree with you. I mean, the idea of walking away from toxic, abusive work environments makes sense, right? Preserving your mental and emotional well-being needs to be a priority. We have so much mental health illness right now that it is alarming and it's completely just like overlooked. And it's really sad that we've allowed people to get to this stage. And a lot of it has to do with a lot of the environments that ultimately are being nurtured. And um, I come from the thought process, obviously, as an attorney and focusing on workplace justice, where I advocate for accountability. And the advocacy for accountability, obviously, with the intent of kind of educating people on how 
they need to identify when something is illegal versus yes. when it's not. And when it is illegal, to make sure that you have the necessary tools to seek accountability. And when it's yeah. legal, but unjust and unfair, to like what you said, walk away from it because it's not worth it. And so I wanted to ask you this this question about what we have been hearing. I think it's been recognized this year as probably one of the most, I don't know what kind of an award it got, but it was basically termed as the most used word of this year, which I'm is, was it? <laughs> I, I, it was gaslighting. Yeah. So what are the common themes that you see with respect to corporate gaslighting? Yeah, so corporate gaslighting, I love talking about corporate gaslighting. So I'm actually writing a book on corporate gaslighting. That's how much I love. Amazing. So corporate gaslighting, what I can say some of the themes are is that it lives, just like we were talking about attribution and ambiguity, it lives in this gray space. It thrives in this this very gray area where you're not quite sure if you're being socially isolated. The uncertainty that you feel at work is kind of the first sign that you need to be looking around and seeing if if things are being presented to you as they truly are. So mm. the, the fundamental thing about gaslighting is that it gets you to second guess your reality. Right. So the boss that says, uh, don't worry about coming to the, the leadership meeting and you don't come. And then later you're lambasted about it. Yeah. Well, you were in a meeting. Well, you said, don't come to the meeting. No, I don't remember that. Things like that. Small social isolation, so kind of counting you out of information that might help you get further faster. So looking at all of those different different symptoms and trying to figure out, hey, being sure within yourself first, so kind of checking yourself, but also understanding that gaslighting lives in the gray. Yeah, absolutely. And it's harmful. I mean, it's so harmful to people that experience it. And I often see it when a lot of my clients go through the process of reaching out to their employer, their HR, and really bringing to their attention some form of injustice that's occurring, whether it's on the basis of their race or their gender or combination of both, that they're not being given a fair opportunity. They're being set up to fail, that they're being structured to be exited out, the performance improvement plan is showing up, things are just starting to make it seem like, okay, I'm not included. There's a whole narrative that's being constructed against me. I raised this complaint and now it seems like my performance is an issue. So there's there's always this ongoing dilemma. And a lot of people, when they experience gaslighting, a lot of people may not be able to recognize that they're being gaslighted and then they'll move towards looking at themselves and saying, did I say something? Did I do something? Is it me? Is it really? Maybe it's yeah. me. Maybe it's not. Maybe they're right. Maybe what they're saying is my performance is not so good. Maybe I should just, maybe I have to change. And all of a sudden, your authentic self is being impacted, chipping away at who you are because they yes. don't want you there. And I feel like there's a significant harm that comes from it. So, Dr. Singleton, thank you so much for today. I really deeply appreciate the conversation. Appreciate all your work. I would actually love to learn more about the Sarah Jane Academy. I'd love to enroll in it. I'd love to see what you're sure. offering. So that way I can really help and make a difference to, this is what we're all trying to do, right? We're all trying to make a difference to our world, to make our society better for everyone. And so, yeah, I wanted to thank you for taking out the time to do this. And uh, I appreciate you. 
Yes, thank you. I wish it was longer, the time with you today. So thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Awesome. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. You take care now. Thanks for joining us today on the Workplace Justice Podcast. Love this episode? Leave us a review and tell us what you think about our show. If you haven't subscribed yet, head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss a new episode. Need help? Talk to an employment lawyer today. Visit our website at nisarlaw.com or call 212-600-9534 for your free case evaluation. See you in the next episode.